Welcome to the 15th episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. But the joke's on us because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who. Got a big who's who fetish here at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. <laughs> and in fact, we must use those characters. I'm Siskoid, and I'll let you in on all the rules. But let's welcome my guests with which to create a line of books based on who's who number 15. You heard the laugh. It's for the second time in his case. So welcome back to the show, the totally redeemable shag. <laughs> Thank you so much for letting me be here. I have a bit of a passion for who's who, so the minute we got done recording last time, I said, when can I do the next one? And you're like, oh, goodness gracious, Shag. Yeah, give me a few months. I need a break from you. So here I am. <laughs> I, I, I hovered around the M's, and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, I thought you would be interested in an issue that includes, you know, Metamorpho, who was a member of the Justice League Europe, and, and Mr. Miracle, who's in JLI. So it's some of your some of the characters you cover on a regular basis are in here. And will I stick to my Justice League International roots? Well, I guess we'll have to find out. But I do have hmm. a complaint. Oh. There's, a, there's a lot of villains in this issue, so we don't get as many heroes. But you labeled Mento as a villain, not a hero. Right. Yeah, Mento goes bad. Um, <laughs> Everyone does at some point. <laughs> yeah, but he stays bad. I don't think Mento comes back from the brink, does he? I'm, I'm sure at some period of time, uh, Steve Dayton was uh, you know helping the Titans out at some point, I'm sure. But whatever, <laughs> that's fine. It's possible. Sorry. Uh, you can always use him in your... You know, as your bonus book at the end, if you really care about him. Or desperate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, were there challenges in this? Yes. The hardest one for me was uh, Mr. Takitani. That was the hardest one to crack for me. Uh, I'm pleased with what I did, but it was tough. Now, I know, because we talked off air, I already know who yours is. So go ahead and tell me, who was the tough one for you to crack in this one? Mine was Metron. I mean, Takitani was the one of the ones I thought, oh, this is going to be tough, but I it was one of the the first ideas I had. But Metron, I thought I'd, I'd have him cracked early, but then somehow I didn't. It's interesting. The very fact of you telling me that Metron was your most difficult one immediately cracked it for me. Like, literally, oh. you said Metron was your toughest, and I instantly knew what I wanted. I don't know how those two things happened together, but the very fact of you mentioning it cracked it for me. So thank you. Metron and Mr. Miracle were the first two that came to mind. Like, Mr. Miracle and Metamorpho, it's about the biggest stars, or Metal Men, maybe. Some of the biggest stars here. So there's not, like, a like a real big A-list hero. What? You're disparaging Matrix Prime and Mindboggler? I mean, the, the pinnacles of DC Comics in the 80s? Jeez. Well, if we go for the villains, Mr. Mixelplex in here, but that's true. in a way that's a challenge, because maybe you're trying to create a, a line and you're going, well, you know, there's not, there's no one to pin it on. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, in some episodes, that's been, oh, it's easy, Batman, let's do like a whole Batman thing. Which sounds like DC Comics' its own strategy. But, <laughs> <laughs> but in this case... I don't know if you considered it a challenge or not, but this was a, as widespread an issue of who's who as they come. Like, I didn't really address anyone's ethnicity. It'll be up to the creative teams in this case, because I was like, oh, oh, do I change this character's race? Or it was either impossible within the context of the character, or I felt like, oh, it just doesn't do anything new for the character. It doesn't help the character in any way. So I'm just going to let that go to the creative teams that I handpick as a you know, as, as the editor here. But I did find it's like, oh, there's a little lack of diversity in here. I try to make a couple of attempts to fix that uh, in one or two entries. And then the rest is sort of like you. I'm like, you know, race isn't dependent on most of my entries. So it could be anything. Uh, if it's if I reinvented the character, I should say. Yeah. And so there's some of those that I tried. Some of those I'm just left it up to, the, as you said, the creative team. And there's some that I flipped the gender on purpose. So I, I tried to put a little bit in there. I just started after last time, I, I realized how... Uh, thoughtful you were in that regard. Now, I did not try and play architect and develop one major plan across the whole line of books. Like I, My favorite era of DC Comics is like in the early 90s when you had the kind of world where you could have JLI on the shelves right next to Sandman or next to Animal Man or next to, you know, I don't know, Hero Hotline. I love a wide, diverse series of characters that just don't fit together, but are still, in theory, in the same universe. I love that. So I didn't try and make a whole line-wide thing. I just went for what I thought was best for the character. And you know what? They all exist in the same universe, so that's fine. I agree with you. That, like, that was a great era, great diversity in comics, and I, I was really into it as well. Let's give the people the rules one more time for each episode of Who's Editing. Our line of books must include a monthly series for every hero character or team featured. We can give a villain or another entry that honor, but uh, only if we absolutely need to. 
imagine we're coming back from some crisis or others. We can reboot characters. You can use any continuities version. It's really up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries. Note that we are each pitching our own ideas. So we'll sort of end up with two possible lines of books. Listeners, you decide which books you'd actually want to read and we'll actually play that game too, as we'll each have enough money to buy one title from the other editor's line. Oh, that's a clever idea, having each of us pick one. I like that. Yeah, it came to the room um, around <laughs> around episode three. Yeah, probably uh, about the time I was there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So you sort of mentioned your strategy. Is there more to it? No, there's no there's no reoccurring theme. There's nothing hidden back here. It's just, uh, again, I just try to design the best story for the character, which may be boring, but it was the the way I felt like I wanted to approach the characters. I didn't want to be feel pigeonholed by saying, okay, there's this one big event that they all, you know, the white right. event from the new universe they all have to tie into or something like that. It's interesting that you said theme. Because this issue has Metal Man and Metamorpho, mm-hmm. I sort of took transformation and combination of things as a theme. Hmm. You'll see it bubble under the surface of my elevator pitches, but it's not like, again, it's not, it, like you, it's not based on one big event. Some characters are reimagined. Some are definitely the ones you remember just at a certain point in their lives or whatever. So I only kept about a third of the original characters in okay. some recognizable form. The other two thirds, I just completely reimagined. I'm not sure where my proportion would fall. We'll find out. I guess so. Issue 15 of Who's Who, we have to include a minimum of 14 books in our line and a maximum of 15. Shag, I'm going to hand it off to you first and we'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order. We'll keep our bonus villain series, if any, for the end. It starts with... One of my favorite characters uh, from the Legion, Matter Eater Lad. So I feel like you set me up by making me go first here. However, I think you're going to be happy with my pitch. Because he's okay. one of the characters I didn't uh, reimagine. It's not exactly the way we knew him, but it's not a reimagining. So this is a crime drama story. This is a dark comic book, lots of dark uh, crime noir, but lots of dark humor too. Very dark, dark, funny humor. It's 31st century, but it's not about Tenzel Kim. He's actually left superheroics behind. He's off in politics now, just like he did in the five years later era. Oh yeah. So this is the story of a of another young kid from the planet Bismol who takes on the mantle of Matter Eater Lad. Unfortunately, he gets caught up in a bizarre situation with organized crime. Uh, Now he's being forced to use his power to be able to eat anything. He's using this to dispose of incriminating evidence for a crime family. If he doesn't do this, they'll kill the people he loves. So he ends up getting really entangled with this crime family. He doesn't want to, but he's stuck in it. Because even if he could escape uh, with his loved ones, he's now committed so many crimes uh, for them that they could implicate him. So think of like uh, Ozark but with the ability to eat anything uh, rather than launder money. So he destroys any incriminating evidence. He's eating, you know, weapons. He's eating, I don't know, gloves from a murder. He's eating dead bodies, anything that they need him to dispose of. He's the human garbage disposal. Again, very dark, lots of twisted humor, and things just always seem to get worse for our protagonist. And uh, imagine kind of like an Ed Brubaker criminal sort of book. That really is dark if he's, like, eating. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Eating bodies. Uh Uh-huh. A bit of a... Murder victims. Never mind a, a drum full of acid. Right, exactly. Uh, if you got a guy who can eat anything, why not? <laughs> oh, God. I went really an opposite way, I guess. I don't know if it's opposite so much as like uh, going off an, another axis. Okay. This is a comic for foodies. Oh, wow. Okay. Matter Eater Lad opens a small restaurant, and the adventures either center around him dealing with rivals or helping patrons, that kind of thing. My inspirations are largely Japanese comedy, like one of those sushi or bread-making animes. Okay. (laughs) But my personal template is a film like uh, Tampopo, which I heartily recommend, or uh, the Tokyo Diner television series. So people walk into Tenzil's, tell their stories, maybe the regulars help each other out, the seeds of a community are sown, characters from the Legion stories can of course drop by, there's no way Bouncing Boy isn't a big eater, or Colossal <laughs> Boy, still a growing boy. Right. Uh, so as a bonus, each issue has a recipe featured in it, or, oh. or it might be inspired by, or actually show up in the comic itself, in the story. Maybe readers can send some in and then see their dish served on the comic book page as well. So it's more of a comedy, let's say, than yours. 
I love that. That is hilarious. I'm envisioning like Keith Giffen in his the period where he was really drawing all the black faces on everyone, like right at the beginning of the five year later, just everyone looking like that, but like funny diners, you know, set type setting. I love that. I love the name of the restaurant too, Tenzel's. That's brilliant. Let's stay in the comedy vein, at least for me, with Amazing Man. I thought this one was going to be tough, but almost 10 years ago now, I read all of Amazing Man and I wrote about it on my blog. And I wished aloud that Bob Rosakis and Stefan Stefano would return to it and show us what the gang was up to 30 years later, which now would be 40 years, I guess. Bob Rosakis himself showed up in my comments section, <gasps> telling me not to hold my breath about DC even collecting it. Aww. Well, at my DC, I mean, this is the experiment. <laughs> at my DC, not only does Amazing Man get collected... It does get relaunched in the, in the same way that, you know, after the series, they did these, these yearly specials. And each time, it, like the story jumped a whole year and we caught up with the characters. It would do that here. Uh, we're on the same street in Queens, but 40 years later uh, with the characters older, a new generation. Amazing Man, probably older, too, but who can tell, you know? Uh, so this was a really lovely series full of you know optimism and kindness and if i had my wish it would just magically be back as it was interesting see i've never read that series at all so i i had nothing to base on other like the who's who entry and rob's love for it and things like that so instead i re-envisioned it completely using the apostrophe amazing man uh, mine is a trailer park hero he's about 45 years old he's overweight he's got a mullet he wears uh, a giant stylized number three on his belt buckle for Dale Earnhardt's NASCAR. Wanted to call himself the Eliminator, which was Dale Earnhardt's tagline. But the local folks started calling him Amazing Man. Uh, it was going to be that or Murica Man. So he ended up stuck with Amazing Man. <laughs> he drives around an old beat up 1980s Firebird with the T-tops out so he can always leap out into action at any given moment. And he actually has some powers. He's got this very like low-level enhanced physical abilities, like a little bit of minor super strength, a little bit of speed, a little bit of toughness. Nothing too astonishing, but kind of surprising for such an out-of-shape kind of guy. Uh, the whole point of the comic is to be extremely satirical. It's got to be in black and white. It's got to feel like a 1980s sort of like indie comic. You know, think Peter Bagg or Evan Dorkin kind of style humor with Mason Man. So that was my pitch. Have you seen Peacemaker yet? I haven't. I, I, everyone tells me I need to. I don't have HBO Max. So at some point I will see it. There are some elements of what you're talking about in that show. I hope it's a T-Bird with no T-Tops. <laughs> Or a Firebird with no T-tops. I mean. There's some Firebird action, for sure. Oh, uh, wow. Not that I can tell cars apart, so I'm, I may be wrong. <laughs> but there's trailer park action, for sure. Okay. <laughs> so next up is, well, this is a character that you have some familiarity with, Mara. Yes. So I considered reinventing her. But instead, I did a little bit more like you did with Amazing Man, which was I just decided to do what they did right and do more of it. You know, okay. take what they did in the New 52, which if anything good came in the New 52, it's what they did with Mara. You know, put her front and center, warrior queen of Atlantis, get someone like Ivan Reese back drawing her stories, you know, create more high adventure underwater action like Jeff Johns and Jeff Parker created, you know, do four issues of like monster adventure and then two issues of like, I don't know, political queen's court drama, whatever. And then right back to the adventure. Just again, do more of what came before and do it well. Pretty straightforward. What about you? Mera and Aquaman are separated again in my continuity. Mm -hmm. And she's left Atlantis to become the Pacific Ocean's greatest hero. Ah, okay. So I want to give her her own realm. You know, it's a, adventures in the Aquaman mold, but we lean into what makes the Pacific different and interesting. Pacific Rim countries, we got Dinosaur Island, Kui Kui Kui, <laughs> the plastic vortex, you know, the, the great oh, yeah. Pacific gyre. Even the old Black Hawk Island should be in there. Her villains will come out of Japan or Australia or Superboy's Hawaiian rogues gallery. And by playing up that setting and playing down associations with boring old Atlantis, I'm being the voice box for Rob here. <laughs> I think we set the series apart from what's being done in Aquaman. So there can be an Aquaman series, but Mera really has her own place, her own role, her own villains, or her own supporting cast. I think we can get some ethnic diversity in there as well because it's you know, on the other side of the world. But we are planning to have several issues of her negotiating peace accords between kelp farmers, though, right? I mean, that's important. I, I mean, if you want to write it, <laughs> we'll publish it. <laughs> okay, next up, The Mercenaries. Ugh. What a generic IP, man. Oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And we're joking about it because it's like this was uh, Robert Kaniger's attempt at creating, you know, a war strip 
that took place in the current day, and then you just filled it with UFOs. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not that UFOs can't show up in a haunted tank story, and it's not, but still. I think here, there's a subtitle, and I think Soldiers of Fortune is a, the better title. You know, it's better than Mercenaries. And I'm, I'm going to go further. Like I said, when I was going to combine things, I'm going to call this Seven Soldiers of Fortune. Uh. I don't want to do a current day war comic like this. So it's a superhero book in the style of, let's say, Heroes for Hire, in which Oracle, Barbara Gordon, coordinates a roster of six other operatives to help people who call her 1777 number. Heroes have agreed to do a tour of duty with the Seven Soldiers, so they'll be rotating in and out of the comic, and technically almost anyone could be a member. But I am prioritizing those who don't have any other home, pulled from all over who's who, really. like People like, I think, Black Orchid fits here, Elongated Man, Firehawk, Mal Duncan, uh, Max Mercury, The Thorn, people like that. And maybe there's always like an open slot in the group for a, you know, a specialist, a mission specialist. Like, we need Dolphin. In this one, we need Animal Man, we need Zatanna, you know, because of the the nature of the problem. It actually sounds a little bit like uh, what the original template for Justice United, or Justice League United, I think is what it was called. What that was their intention, was have a rotating roster specialized for missions, yeah. Task Force was kind of like that at first as well, so. Absolutely. So I struggled with sort of the bland IP as well, and, and I reinvented as well, uh, a little bit differently from you. Because, you know, I, I looked at the name, like you could go anywhere with this, and really don't even have anywhere to start from. So I started from the point of it being a war comic. And like you mentioned, Robert Kaniger, I kind of thought about him a little bit. So I thought, what's my favorite war comic that Robert Kaniger was associated with? Well, that is, of course, The War That Time Forgot on Dinosaur Island. I'm so glad you mentioned it earlier. So uh, I want to introduce this team of hardcore mercenaries, modern day, not um, like sanctioned government agencies or mercenaries. So they've got a whole variety of skills. You know, you got someone who's got brawn, you got someone who's like a gun nut, you got a, like a bladed weapons expert and the brains and a scooby expert. You know, you want men and women, you want white, black, you want Hispanic, you want the whole range of diversity. You, and the trick here is you've got to firmly establish these characters, their personalities. You've got to make the readers care about these. You've got to make them real people, whether they're gung-ho jerks or, you know, the person who's there because they think they could do good, whatever. But then turn them loose on Dinosaur Island. Because a, a, a lot of war comics, especially the Dinosaur Island stuff, sort of made the mistake of making the soldiers always generic. Now, again, for this book to work, you got to care about the characters. So if they get eaten by a dinosaur, you actually care. And each issue, have them battle some other aspect of, of Dinosaur Island to keep it interesting. You know, keep the landscape changing. Keep the geography changing. You know, one issue will be about in the jungle. The next issue will be soaring in the sky, you know, fighting pterodactyls. The next will be underwater. The next will be on the rim of an active volcano, whatever. But keep changing it every issue for as long as you can so you hopefully don't run out of ideas. And then we start running out of mercenaries because, you know, one or two get eaten every so often. Resupply them with new characters that, again, you you learn to care about. That's the real key is you've got to care about the characters. Well, dinosaurs, you're speaking my language. <laughs> now, will you be speaking my language on this next one? Mary, the girl of a thousand gimmicks. Well, I don't know if I'm speaking your language, but my language is I love this character's backstory as, okay. as she exists. She is the adopted sister of Star Spangled Kid. So Sylvester Pemberton took her in and she took on the identity of gimmick girl to battle crime. So my thought is just go forward from that basic premise. I, I don't want to get too hung up on a lot of like, you know, this happened and this happened with her story, but th that's the gist of it and keep that. So in my comic, it actually features two strips every issue. The lead feature would be a classic tale of her as a teenager battling criminals with her gimmicks. You know, do it very sort of like, like a Silver Age story, but told through a modern lens. The best example I can think of is uh, Brave and the Bull 200, how they told a, uh, like a Golden Age, Silver Age Batman story, but it was done by Alan Davis in the modern era. You know, so it, it felt very engaging, even though it still had those classic tropes. So do that, you know, or a Doc Shaner or something like that to draw it. Then the backup feature would be Mary as a geriatric advising Stargirl, who's, you know, the successor of Sylvester Pemberton, or maybe her own son, Brainwave Jr., and helping them with cases. So think of sort of like uh, the Golden Girls battling crime. And uh, preferably, if you got to pick one, as much as we all love Betty White, I'd rather see Sophia out there being nasty, fighting bad guys. <laughs> 
B. Arthur as Mary. Mary, the woman of a thousand gimmicks. No, not B. Arthur. Sophia was the, the older mother. I'm sorry. The, yeah. the mother who had no filter, who said whatever came to mind. That was right. that, the brilliance of Estelle Getty. Yeah. Th- that's even crazier. I know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry I'm not up on my Golden Girls at the moment. Obviously, I've seen them all. And Well, my Gimmick Girl, because I think that's the better title, Gimmick okay. Girl, yeah. you know, for the book. To explain what I want to do with the series, I need to give you a little history lesson about the way French-language comics, by which I mean the Belgian kind, are published. Euro comics are, are known for their hardbound, 64 pages, you know, albums, like these big graphic novels. That's that's how you, you purchase them around here. Like the asterisks and stuff like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Tintin. Mm-hmm. And, but in the 50s through the 80s, the stories were most likely serialized in the publishing house's weekly magazine. So, for example, in Tintin magazine, you'd get four pages of the next Tintin graphic novel and then a mix of chapters of other books about to be published by Casterman in this case, uh, one-page gag strips, that kind of thing. And then, like, Pilot Magazine did the same thing with Asterix and other Dupuis strips, etc. And one of these magazines was called Piff Gadget. It was named after its big star, Piff, who was a funny animal dog, and his supporting cast all got their own strips. So it was, a, like, a big deal, you know, in Europe. It was also uh, the home of uh, more realistic swashbucklers and a very popular caveman strip called Rang. Who eventually went to animation. Uh, he was like MacGyver, but a caveman. Okay. But it was really cool. And each issue, this is the important part, each issue came in a poly bag with a gadget. That's why it was called Piff Gadget. Uh. So it was some kind of plastic toy, often with some assembly required. I mean, they once offered sea monkeys. So it could be, you know, it really could be anything you might find in those old comic ads where with the x-ray specs and all of that stuff. So that's my vision for Mary, okay? You can get it in digital format without the toy, but the true collector will want to have the print issue with the toy, which would be one of the ones used in the story. There will always be a connection. You know, you could do more elaborate toys. Maybe there's like a multiple part story, so there's multiple parts to the toy and collect them all. So this is a like a fun, adventuresome comic with clean, toyetic art. It sounds like yours. You know, like your Silver Age version mm-hmm. of it. Mike Allred came to mind for me. You know, that kind of really clean look. Really, I want the, the heroine's aesthetic to be the same as Toy Man's. You know, it, it has to be like that toyetic kind of look. So Gimmick Girl is the kinder surprise of comics, trading on nostalgia for the cereal box and Cracker Jack uh, prizes of old. And my deal with some tat-making company will keep it from blowing up the comics price. <laughs> it's kind of the hope. That is super fun. And I, I like to think that too. Like every writer who ever had to write like Star Wars or G.I. Joe, who, you know, once a year they'd come in with the toy catalog and say, okay, somehow work these toys into the comics now. Uh, you know, I feel like that would be like the nightmare of the writer of every issue. The toy company ultimately would dictate what gadget they have to put into the comic. So there'd be like a writer's nightmare. I love it though. Yeah, we need a, we need like a modern day Bill Mantlo. Right. I was just thinking that. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Here's some of our marquee characters, the Metal Men. This is probably my shortest pitch. Very easy. Because the Metal Men series I want to read has already been done. And ah. even fairly recently. So in 2009, Keith Giffen, Jam Demetrius, and Kevin Maguire teamed up on a Metal Men backup in Giffen's Doom Patrol. It was a sitcom in the Bwahaha vein, and it deserves to be the take on the Metal Men for the current era of comics. If you're looking for it, it runs from Doom Patrol Volume 5, issues 1 through 7. This is exactly what I want my Metal Men series to be like. Was it the character of Bronze that they kept forgetting she was there? Like, every issue, they'd be like, who are you? She's like, I'm one of your teammates, you idiot. Copper? Copper. It was Copper. That's what it was. That was a fantastic strip, and I'm kicking myself now. However... My pitch is not even really a pitch, so I could use yours to make this work. So in my case, uh, I've loved every incarnation of the Metal Men in in some way, shape, or fashion. And it seems like every time they appear, it is a completely different version of the Metal Men. They get reimagined every single time. And I also liked a recent series, the one written by, wait for it, Dan Dan (laughs) DiDio. He wrote a good comic. I'm not kidding. It's crazy. So uh, in my mind, I'm actually up for any version of the Metal Men, whether it's the Dan DiDio version or the version you just described. The key is, and this is why I didn't really do a pitch, but mine is, there's a set of rules they have to follow. The first is, you need to set a solid premise and stick to it. 
You know, the origin and the robot processing and all that, it gets changed every time. It gets reimagined completely. Just establish it in the first issue. Don't fiddle around with it. Don't have later some big reveal. Don't secretly make them humans. Just establish the rules and stick to it. That's fine. The second one, you got to have gorgeous art. It's got to be high tech. It's got to be shiny. The color's got to pop. You know, Shane Davis did a really nice job on that DiDio series. So I really like that. I'd be fine with that. You mentioned Kevin McGuire. His work was gorgeous on that as well. Or you get someone like a Bart Sears at a shiny metal. Or Walt Simonson's issues of the metal men were also gorgeous. But if I could, I'd have Walt Simonson draw everything. But um, <laughs> so gorgeous artwork. And it's got to look high tech. Third, it's got to be high-energy adventures. Don't get bogged down with the robot's feelings every issue. Just show them fighting chemo or a giant dinosaur or something. Travel to other dimensions. You know, it's got to be like Fantastic Four-style larger-than-life adventures. And use their metallic properties to the fullest. You know, gold is malleable. Mercury is liquid. You know, make the distinction of who they are based on their, their metals. And make it zany, man. And the fourth is, you know, have them lose. Have them get destroyed and rebuilt. That's part of who they are. Don't try and pretend like so many stories do that it's like this huge shocking ending and one of the metal men died. It happens every time. Just let it happen, rebuild them, and move on. Don't make a big deal out of it. So, I again, I didn't have a specific pitch, but I could just as easily use yours and apply those same rules. Yeah, I would keep those rules as well. Just like the three laws of robotics. <laughs> and there's like the, the five rules of metal men. Right. Don't get too creative. <laughs> just tell a damn good story. <laughs> metal men are so pure comics. Right. Why are you fiddling with that? Another character that I, I don't think needs much of a fiddle uh, <laughs> is Metamorpho. I don't know, but it, it feels to me like Metamorpho doesn't really need much of a change, but you're the expert here. You're the one that reads them and reviews them yeah. monthly. So. Metalman and Metamorpho are both two of the picks that I did not dramatically reinvent. Because you're right, Metamorpho... He's already got a theme song that's perfect. Come on, people. You don't screw with this. I, as much as I love my Justice League Europe, and I love talking about Rex every month, you know what? Forget that. Forget the dark, sulky Rex. Take him back to the Ramona Frayden days. You know? Yeah. Make it cartoonish. I don't need brooding. We've seen that. Make it fun. You know, keep, uh, keep Sapphire his love interest. You know, she can still be the spoiled rich girl. You know, don't make her an airhead. Make her intelligent. You know, fix that part of it. You can keep Simon Stagg as the antagonist. In fact, he makes a great antagonist. He really does. Keep Java in there. It's like this insane formula. Caveman, rich people. It's nuts. But again, make it fun. Get like a Kyle Baker or a Baltazar and Franco or, you know, someone like that. Someone who can do uh, comics nowadays that are fun for kids and adults. And the most important thing you got to have multiple science facts each issue. You know, magnesium, you know, the burning of magnesium is bright, or sodium and water mixing is you know, explosive, or building electromagnets. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I can't tell you these things, and it's not my job to do this. So have someone else do this. But it should, basically every page should be so fun that you can hear the theme song in your head. I agree with most, if not all, of what you said. So, yeah, I also want to bring it back to that clean Ramona Fredon, Jim Apparel look. You know, look at him there like in the, in the entry. Today, the... They kind of make him look too busy. There's mm -hmm. like just too much going on on the skin. Yeah. We don't need all of that. Keep him clean. I want his adventures to be weird. and He's Indiana Jones with superpowers. Ooh, that's good. Right? That's what he is. He's also the thing. So, you know, the because he doesn't really want those powers. He, he sort of is Ben Grimm. But the thing in Marvel 2-in-1, you know, like treated as an indestructible guinea pig. Let's plunge him into a volcano. You know, that's the kind of stuff <laughs> that happens in 2-in-1. Yeah. This is the kind of adventure I want for Rex. Either way, he goes looking for trouble, which is the thing. So, And you're right. He's got one of the most distinctive supporting casts in comics. Yeah. Alicia Masters and her dad, the Puppet Master. <laughs> Sapphire <laughs> and Simon Stagg. You know, like, I keep all of that. Java the Caveman, I keep all of that. And I do love a, a superhero power couple. So I, I think I'd want Element Girl in there as ah. well as Rex's action partner. The twist is that she likes him, but he's in a relationship with Sapphire. And that can't be consummated, exactly. So I'm contradicting JLE, I guess, with the baby. And, but, okay, uh, okay. Usually these partnerships, they're a couple. So in this case, it's not romantic, even if maybe Element Girl wants it to be. It's classic metamorpho. I don't think this character needs to be toyed with. Yeah, I, well, they should make a toy, but they don't need to mess with him. You're absolutely right. Exactly. Great toy because you just replace the, the body parts. Exactly. Uh, you can sell accessories for until the end of time. <laughs> Speaking of accessories, what a segue. Metron. Metron has a chair. That's the accessory. Okay, so <laughs> this was my tough one, right? Uh-huh. 12 years ago, Shag, to come back in time with me. Yes, sir. We both participated in a blog crossover event called Read These Two. 
It cannot have been 12 years ago. That was 12 years ago. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> we each recommended, everyone in participated, a lesser known comic. You recommended, remember what you recommended? Uh, I think it was The Written, or Unwritten, wasn't it? I think I recommended Unwritten, and then I read upon someone else's recommendation, Man-Thing. I went to look, and you recommended Essential Man-Thing. Okay. And Franklin Richards Digest. Oh, okay. Then I guess maybe I read Unwritten because someone else recommended it to me. I'm not sure. Maybe that's what it was. Because there was like a list and we each published it, right? Yeah, the Manthe book's so good. It is. Uh, I recommended Scott Morris's Strange Science Fantasy. Hmm. And I'm giving him a call to do something similar with Metron's book. So Metron is an anthology host in a comic that I'm calling Mobius Chair. Oh. It's less the horror of House of Mystery and more the sci-fi of Outer Limits. With a Kirby sheen on top of it and set in the DC multiverse, whatever Scott Morse decides that means. So I uh, like Strange Science Fantasy, which I know people don't. It's not like a commonly known book. Each issue is like a crazy beat poem. It feels new, but it looks retro. And you just never know what you'll see from the Mobius chair. <laughs> The way the strange science fantasy worked, it's like you had a lot of like bold images, but never any, like the text was in between the panels. No speech bubbles. It was like a, a tale told sort of thing. So like the art really popped. Anyway, that's what I would want to see with this Metron book. That's what I came up with at the end. Interesting. Okay. All right. Nothing like a good little bit of sci-fi out there and get a little bit different, get a little weird. So for me, I when again, the moment you said that was your hardest one to crack, it came into my head fully formed. Took the word Metron and turned it into Metronome. Okay. Uh, now the book can still be called Metron. That's fine. But that's what was what the key was. That's what unlocked all of it for me. So this character, and this is where I try to throw a little, uh, not a bunch of white men sort of thing. So this is a 20-something girl. Her background, her ethnicity could be anything. doesn't really matter. But she's a college dropout, and she's working in a coffee shop just to get by. And she grew up, when she was growing up, uh, she played the piano. In fact, she played the piano expertly, but she didn't really have a passion for it. It's almost like she understood the mechanics of the music, but never really under, understood the soul of the music. And her whole life, again, going back to this metronome idea, her whole life's been about timing. She can actually see the timing of the universe. And the way it manifests itself is her ability to see cause and effect at like a micro and a macro level. So in advance, she can see what's going to happen based on every action she takes. She can see every choice that she makes, sort of like a, like a Rube Goldberg machine, you know, like the mousetrap game. She can see that if she drops a marble, it'll start a whole bizarre series of chain of reactions that might unlock a bank vault or stop a runaway truck all from just dropping a marble. So all this power rests in the hands of, again, this 20-something slacker. Her new boyfriend pushes her and says, you know, you should use this power to help people. So at first she does it just to pretty much impress him, or maybe for her own gain. But eventually, the power lets her start to see cause and effect in what we're doing to our own planet. And so she starts to work towards saving the environment. It becomes a very environmentally aware book of trying to make some change to make the world a better place. And it's all through little micro motions, because she can see how the ripple effects that come out from that. And uh, in my mind, I'm picturing art like uh, like Chris Bacalo's on Shade, you know, a lot of weird, trippy stuff. But at the same time, like she looks like Kathy George from Shade to me is how I, I picture pe my version of Metron. Hot. Uh, <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, super intriguing. Like this front runner. I'm looking in my purse, and this might be the front runner, Shaq. One of my two favorites here. All right, uh, yeah, one. Oh uh, no, one of my three favorites actually. But okay. So it's the third. Okay. Uh, from what I understand. <laughs> I already know which is my favorite of yours. That was a pretty quick choice so far. We'll see if you uh, if you outdo yourself, though. Well, here's your chance to outdo your Metron book with Midnight. Don't hold your breath. Okay. This one inspired <laughs> nothing in me. Like, I tried. I'm like, okay, it, it's already the spirit. You know, there's... I, what am I going to do? Reinvent him as the spirit? So I couldn't do that. So I went a whole different direction, but it, it doesn't feel terribly inspired. And I, I feel like I've let myself down, but I went with like a horror magic anthology comic. So it's, you know, it's a, it's almost like it's midnight, the podcasting hour in comic book right. form, you know, three short stories, each issue, uh, seven pages, each story. So you keep them short and tight and get in and out. And some of them can be serialized. And the, the thing that I want though, is some reoccurring features, uh, like maybe two reoccurring and one new one, each issue, but I want to keep it firmly in in the DC universe so that every character appears somewhere in the DC universe. And if they're popular enough, you spin them off from their own book. So you might get like a story with shadow pack with blue devil. You know, you might get a story with like swamp thing. You might get a story with justice league dark with blue devil, or you might get John Constantine, or you might get the trench coat brigade side by side with blue devil. 
or Madame Xanadu, or Etrigan, or you might even throw a Blue Devil story in there. But that's that's really where I ended up with Midnight. Not terribly inspiring, but you know what? A horror anthology? There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Maybe uh, Blue Devil can show up or something. It might be a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I did not have any trouble with this one. Oh, good. good. Um, well, I mean, in the comics themselves, the strips themselves, what separated Midnight from the spirit was it was really more goofy. Okay. <laughs> There's elements of that strip in my idea, but it's not really that either. So, like you with Metron, I, I thought there were not enough female characters in this issue for my taste. So, my Midnight, it, set in the contemporary era, is a woman. Instead of the radio angle, this Midnight is an anchor woman for local television news at 11. And Ooh. as soon as it's over, she's on patrol in Big City as Midnight, taking care of outstanding cases she just reported on minutes before. So her whole shtick is based on old pulp heroes. She drives a pimped out 1940s looking car. <laughs> Let's call it the Midnight Runner. Oh. Uh, she talks like she's in a film noir. Professor Wacky helps her with uh, gadgets and scientific expertise because she once saved him from kidnappers. And he communicates with her in the field through a light up monkey installed in the car. It's a tribute to Gabby, the what? talking monkey. <laughs> From the original strip. Yeah, I didn't want a talking monkey, although there is one in Shadow Pact starring Blue Devil. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, I didn't want that. So Gabby is just going to be like this little light-up monkey on the dash or something. Sniffer Snoop, which is mentioned in this entry, uh, will instead be the name of a detective agency that has been tasked by a mob boss to find out who she is. Like, they don't know who their employer is. So eventually the detectives are probably going to be allies. I love the Michael T. Gilbert art here. Mm -hmm. So I'd mm -hmm. want something similar, you know, stylized for my Midnight's Adventure. Is she wearing a suit like him? Yeah. Sweet. It's the same look. But with a female form. Everything you just described sounds super fun. And you actually helped me crack what I should have done, which would have been Midnight Caller, the comic book, is what I would have done. That's what yeah. I would have done. Uh, in hindsight, if only I'd yeah. thought that through. All right. That's a, Yeah, that's good. Let's say that's what you did. <laughs> Next up is Miss Liberty. So this one was tough, I got to admit. Uh, at first I thought, let's make it her descendant. But that's Liberty Bells. <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> And then I thought, uh, Hamilton is still popular. Oh, wow. So she, and she would have been a contemporary of his, right? So maybe there would be interest in a straight-ish American Revolution comic where war nurse Bess Lynn, a.k.a. Miss Liberty, is integrated into the action, meets history's famous figures, and so on. But I still wanted to, to have a twist. Here it is. Just as Hamilton is subversive in the casting of black actors, uh, which makes its own satirical statement about the era, Miss Liberty should be satirical about the place of women in society then and now. So those great figures of history are sexist jerks. They don't give her any credit in either identity. Uh, they make fatal mistakes that she has to fix, etc. Like Hamilton, it would still be well-researched, and I think the Founding Fathers' foibles are a matter of record. And at the same time, the comic will exalt some of history's great women that don't get enough credit. A little bit like what Doctor Who is doing in, in the Jodie Whittaker era, you know, like mm -hmm. all the all the great celebrity historicals are like these women that, oh, we didn't really know their history probably because they were women. So it's going to be a little bit like that. I really like that idea. And the whole idea of sort of taking that same approach that Hamilton took really kind of inspires it. Uh, it gives it some life and pep just, just from that description. I love that. That's great. Yeah, we need a comedy King George in there as well. <laughs> I love Hamilton so much. Oh my gosh. All right, so uh, mine for Miss Liberty. So a uh, little peek ahead. Miss Liberty is this entry. The next entry is Mr. America. Right. So what I've done is I've made two books out of... The two different ideas, but in a different way. And since I get to do them back to back, this works out perfectly. So my first book is called Miss Liberty and Mr. America. That's the name of the book together. So it's golden age adventure and comedy you know, set in World War II. Think of like the romantic bickering of moonlighting, throwing patriotic masked heroes during World War II, you know, fighting against Nazis, keeping America safe and bickering and falling in love the whole time. Just straightforward. Not, I, I didn't put a lot of effort into this one because it's the second one where all the planning really went. But so it, it's straightforward, golden age, Miss Liberty and Mr. America falling in love with one another. And, you know, you just really shipping them the whole time and uh, watching them punch Nazis in the face, which is fun for everyone. The next book, which is where the, the category is Mr. America, the next book is just simply called The Americans. And this is a modern-day book. This is a drama, though. And this is, you talked about Descendants, this is about the grandchildren of Miss Liberty and Mr. America. 
Uh, it's a brother and sister. Uh, their, their father was white and their mother was black. So I try to throw some diversity in here too. So you've got uh, people of a mixed race that have taken up the mantles of their grandparents. So these brother and sister are now Mr. America and Miss Liberty. But in 2022, what does it mean to be a patriotic hero in a country that's so divided how do you show your patriotism without getting political? Especially when these characters get caught up in all kinds of social issues. Like a lot of, you know, a lot of social issues are tied to politics nowadays, unfortunately, whether they for right or wrong. How do you show your patriotism? How do you support movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, knowing that you're half black and that's part of what's on your mind? And how do you work within the system or work outside of it and still be a patriot? So the whole idea behind it is it's supposed to be a thought-provoking comic with no easy answers. You know, sometimes the reader is going to agree with what the heroes do. Sometimes you won't. And sometimes even the heroes can't agree with each other. Because, I mean, let's face it, what brother and sister agree on everything anyway? Mm. And the things don't always end well. Basically, when you get done reading that comic, you're not always going to walk away feeling good about what happened in the pages of that comic. But it's always going to make you walk away thinking. So that's the goal of uh, the Americans. I like how, you know, you talked about the early 90s as a sort of template. And I like how some of these books are, are just adult enough that, like Karen Berger would say, okay, stamp of vertigo in a couple of years. Right, yeah. <laughs> th- th- these books would fit you know, the mold. I like that. Well, thank you. That's, I, that is the kind of stuff I dig. So there, there we go. So what did you do for uh, Mr. America? I went a little funnier. I was inspired by the fact that this is a character that changed his skin a number of times. You know, he was just Tex Thompson mm-hmm. originally. It was just like another adventure strip from the early golden age and then the superhero craze started and he became mr america and then the u.s entered the war and he became americamando so here's the pitch tex thompson really wants to be a superhero and he has the skills for it however he doesn't always show best judgment or maybe he's unlucky but for whatever reason we force him to move to another state after every story and when he moves to another state, he has to change superhero identities, either because the authorities are after him or the, a villain he can't handle or, or he ruined the identity's reputation in the media or, you know, whatever. So everywhere he goes, he takes on a bit of the local flavor. He's a patriotic hero of wherever. So uh, he was Mr. America in, let's say, New Jersey, but he's the American in Washington, D.C. He's the windy citizen in Chicago. (laughs) He's the needle in Washington State, uh, the U.S. Marshal in Arizona, Prairie Pete in Kansas, the Liberty Bow in Philly, the main man in Maine, Florida man. (laughs) Reputation pre-ruined. Right. Yeah, you know, he has to update his look and his gimmick everywhere he goes. He's the superhero equivalent of someone who makes a big faux pas on a message board and has to change their handle. Oh my gosh, that is hysterical. Do you feel, as you're reading the book, is it a, a guffaw, laugh out loud kind of stuff? Or is it more like, oh, this poor guy just can't cut a break, or he's he's his own worst enemy? Or what's the sense of it for the reader? I think it's a mix of all those things. I think he's like... An unlucky schlub that you care about, but it's also funny. I mean, the windy city, and, you know, like some of my ideas right. for to, to match the city or the the state where he goes. You know, it, it, it's him having no crime to fight in Alaska. You know, that's, <laughs> it's going to be stuff like that. So I think it's a parody in a way. You know, it's supposed to be a comedy, but also at the same time, you know, sometimes it's going to be quite serious why he has to leave and there's like consequences and things following him around and like the justice league international you could you, you know you can laugh and then you can also have these dramatic beats in it it does sound a little bit like booster gold you know creating his own problems through his <laughs> uh through his image issues yeah mr e is our next entry and i really like that weird mini series we got in the early 90s seriously i oh, like that God. i like that I hate that thing and i asked for more of the same yeah. Oh, so, gosh, the temptress or whatever it was. <laughs> well, I mean, that story's been told. But okay. Mr. E fights occult things very ruthlessly. He's like a Christian zealot, but he's also at war with his own psyche. So, like, since he's blind, what he sees magically or whatever it is, is tinged with his own personal demons. That was the core of that strange miniseries. So it's also the reason the art needs to be expressionistic. Like, John K. Snyder... The third was perfect for it, I felt. But I'd love issues by Bill Sienkiewicz, Paul Pope, Dave McKean. Those are the artists I would go after. And the art needs to be really upsetting, just like the stories. So uh, if if there's a guy who's going to go up against a demon secretly reincarnated inside a baby, and he goes after it like stakes blazing, 
it's going to be Mr. E. <laughs> he really doesn't care about the collateral damage. He's the last person you should call with your supernatural problem. But sometimes he's all you got. When Blue Devil can't solve it, you got to call Mr. E. Oh, exactly. Or Heroes for Hire, what was it? Mercenaries. So the Seven Soldiers. Right. When the right. Seven Soldiers can't do a thing, you call <laughs> Mr. E. This is dark, but also, you know, kind of whacked out. Wow. That is trippy. Interesting. We have a little bit of parallels. Not a lot. I, I totally reinvented because I just can't stand that series. Uh, okay. And, and I've decided that I have a passion for the duo, the buddy books. So uh, I stole a character who I reinvented this character too, but I just like her name. Mr. E and Miss Tree. So together, two mystery characters together. Uh, reinventions of both. So forgive me for those who love Miss Tree. So this is a straight up mystery comic. However... Bill Sienkiewicz was the artist I pegged as well, which is interesting, oh. because I want this to be a black and white comic, a very noir feeling, a lot of sketchy stuff, but once I once I finish explaining this, he is a type of artist who can do multiple styles, which is why I want him. Anyway, it's a straight up mystery comic, no magic or powers. It's just Mr. E and Miss Tree solving crimes. Very hard-boiled, but here's the quirky thing. They, specifically, not the world around them, but they have a very 1950s feel. Like, no matter how dark or twisted of a hate crime, Mr. E always looks like he's from a 1950s sitcom dad with a pipe in his mouth. Like, picture Bob of the Church of the Subgenius kind of thing, you know? <laughs> and Miss Tree looks like Donna Reed from the 1950s. So, whatever weird themes are going on around here uh, in the story, and no matter, again, I want to see Bill Skins Cabbage doing just dark, scratchy, scratchy stuff, except he does that conflicting art style where they look like they're straight out of the 50s. So, the book is very jarring to look at because the art styles don't match, and he's someone who can do that. And then there's these weird sub-themes going through it, like, how did Mr. E and Miss Tree even find out about the crimes? Or once they're done solving it, where do they go? You know, who are these people? You don't know, but you, you kind of just dole out real slowly over uh, probably a couple of years. Uh, you keep having to solve crimes, but you have these subplots that just keep smoldering in the background of who are these people and why are they so incongruous with the rest of the world around them? So that was my pitch for that. And again, black and white. I like that the mystery is the mystery of the people who are called mystery. Yep. Super interesting. Cool. Glad you like it. Well, next up, okay, you got to tell me what you're doing with Mr. Miracle. This is one of your characters. Yeah, so, okay, I, I love the character Mr. Miracle. I think he's wonderful. He's perfect. I, I can't improve upon him. So I decided, all right, rather than just saying, okay, you know, get Steve Root on it, make it perfect, I completely reinvented the character just to see what it, where it would go. And this is the one I probably um, I obsessed the most about, actually. It's one of the early ones I cracked, and I just kept thinking of more. So... You got to go with me here, folks. When I think of miracles, I think of religion, you know, and religion plays a really large part in the lives of a lot of people, especially in our side of the world. Because of its potentially, you know, feather ruffling or volatile nature, mainstream comics pretty much avoid religion for the most part, unless they're trying to make it dark and edgy, like a preacher or specter or something like that. So why not make a new series with a positive depiction of religion at its core? So in my story, Mr. Miracle is a devoted Christian man. Not hardcore right-wing crazy. He's just, a, he's just a nice guy, and he's got a strong faith. And he's traveling the United States. He's going town to town just helping people. He's got some loosely defined powers. I don't really care what they are, honestly. It, it, it doesn't matter to me. In fact, they could change for the story. It doesn't really matter. Because the whole point is that his overall goal is to help people. And so um, he tries to extend kindness to help people solve their problems and find their own personal faith, whether it's faith in religion or faith in themselves, or faith in their community, or faith in their fellow men and women. It doesn't matter. It's just helping them find their faith to solve these issues. Now, the problems could be social issues, uh, and, and I do highly suggest they address some modern-day social issues, uh, address criminal issues, do all the whole gambit. He's simply trying to help people and relying on his own beliefs and faith. And the harder the task, the more faith that's required to overcome the obstacle the more this affects his power level. He can start tapping into even larger power. At some point, he can, he can even trigger miracles. And that's part of where all that's coming from. So, and, and, and that reinforces to him that his powers come from his own personal religious faith. And at the end of the day, I mean, he's not a Bible-thumping kind of guy. He's not trying to convert people to Christianity. He's just trying to help people. It's, it's not preachy. They're not quoting scripture or anything like that. And I think it'd be interesting to see this guy who's going around trying to uh, see him interact then eventually, not, not immediately, but eventually with other religiously tied figures. Like what would happen with this kindly religious guy, right, who meets the specter or Zuriel? What would happen with that interaction? Or what happens when he meets another superpowered person who's basically doing the same thing as him, but their power comes from a faith in a completely different religion? Could a, a person similarly 
faithful and from the Muslim religion and a Christian religion, could they team up and work together? I would hope so. I'd hope it'd be a story of religious tolerance. And then you could even, just to, to have him something to, to bounce off of, you give him a guy who goes around with him. You know, uh, possibly like some jaded person who's lost their faith and they're trying to learn faith in whatever at that point. That's really been haunting me for a couple of days now. And that I laid it all out. I was really proud of it. I typed it all up. And then I came to the revelation that, oh my gosh, I just typed up the plot of the TV show Highway to Heaven. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, yeah, why not? I Right, I know. Uh, I didn't even mean for that to happen. Uh, in fact, last night, because of that, I sought out an episode of Highway to Heaven and watched it. And I, it's too, so cheesy, but I still love it. So you know what? I'm sticking with it. So there we go. Believe it or not, we have a similar vibe. Really? Well, mine is more like Little House on the Prairie. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> no! It's a joke. Michael now, Landon. <laughs> no, but you'll see. You'll see. It's not faith, but it's something like that. Because I'm still using the original Mr. Miracle. Okay. But imagine the fourth world stuff really did happen in the 70s. Okay? All right. Now we're in the 2020s. Scott Free and Big Barda are grandparents of the new Miss Miracle. Ah. That's my comic, Miss Miracle. Beatrice Free, you can call her B, <laughs> in his 70s, That's I guess that's around the age that Scott would be. Like in his 70s now, he's finally given up the mother box. He's passed it on. But he's not useless, nor is Granny Barda. They're both still living in the suburbs, and they're part of the cast. Shiloh is out there somewhere as Mr. Miracle doing his own thing. Okay. I like your idea of a mixed-race character earlier that's part of a generation. So, you know, maybe Shiloh has a sister, and she's the mother of Be Free. Oh, okay. That would help, you know, give it a little more uh, diversity here, and then keep Shiloh somehow also in the cast as an uncle. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Shiloh and his recent miniseries, uh, Source of Freedom, is probably what I would have done with the character if I hadn't read it. Oh, okay. I did read it. So I needed a different take. Uh, so Kirby's Fourth World Mythos, to me, positioned Scott Free as a messiah figure, a messiah of freedom. And I think he was an inspiration for the escapist who was the hero created in The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, the Michael Shabin novel, uh, in which Michael Shabin allowed to be turned into actual comics around the mid-2000s. I have a couple of collections. They're really gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the escapist isn't just a super escape artist. He's a liberator of prisoners, of minds, of souls. And that's what I want Miss Miracle to have as a, a sort of metaphorical layer. Okay. So yes, the forces of apocalypse are back for another round, but the reason they can't get a foothold on Earth is because she inspires freedom and open-mindedness everywhere she goes, which is anathema to the anti-life equation. Like she's, in fact, she is the life equation. Oh, nice. I like that. This is born of two people, that a person from New Genesis and a person from... Uh, apocalypse she's their legacy just her existence is protecting earth from dark side what you said about faith for her it's freedom but it's the same kind of inspirational power that she has i like it so she does her costume look like a mixture between barda and scott i'm guessing or something like that is she on the discs well in the source of freedom book there was a daughter of uh, scott free and big barda who was sort of a mix of those two costumes. Mm. So you can find it. I, I was thinking more than that. She's really wearing the, uh, the, you know, the red, yellow, and green. Okay. She's really is like recognizably Mr. Miracle or Miss Miracle. I like it. Now with the name Beatrice, I, I'm hoping fire is in her life, maybe as a godmother or something like that. Uh, or B. Arthur. Ah, oh, come now, on. Here, here's my B. Arthur. B. Arthur as Big Barda, as Granny Barda. <laughs> so we each have a golden girl in our line. That's fantastic. I love it. That's perfect. And uh, the last page, you know, the main entries, Mr. Takitani. You said it was tough for you, yeah. for me. This is a whimsical comic. The title is actually... Takitani bought a zoo, and it's, <laughs> it's literally that. Uh, he bought an old empty zoo in Fawcett City, and he makes it a home for talking animals like Detective Chimp, smarter than normal animals like Rex and Topo, and animal men or manimals like himself, the odd werewolf, maybe a war hyena, uh, a couple of reformed crocodile men, maybe Jeepers, the Monster Society. I think that's a bat. It's supposed to be a bat, right? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. He keeps the peace in this little makeshift community. Some of them go on adventures together as a quote-unquote zoo crew. The stories tend to be 
short or you know one page gags that kind of Balthazar and Franco kind there of stuff. Go. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there are visiting days where humans, mostly kids, get to talk to the animals. A chatting zoo, I guess that would be called. Um, <laughs> Rather than a petting zoo. Oh my gosh. And that could motivate excursions to help Fawcett citizens. All ages fun. This is how I close out my entries. That is the best possible usage of the existing Takitani character ever. Hands down, that is the best thing I've ever heard. Because I despise the Marvel family concept. I truly, I, okay. lo- I like the idea of Captain Marvel or Shazam, whatever you want to call him. I like him on his own. And maybe Mary Marvel. But really pushing beyond that, it really starts to grate on my nerves, especially Takitani. Like, I, I get the quaintness of him, but no thank you. I, I know. So I completely reimagined him. I love your pitch, though. I really do. So to set the tone, you mentioned Mike Allred's art. This is a Mike Allred bizarre freaking book. I, you know, Because Mike Allred not only just draws cleanly, he also does comics that are like, blow your mind. Like, what is even happening here? So that's, that, that's the kind of book that's going on here. So I started off just trying to crack this thing. Again, I, I didn't want to have anything to do with the original concept. So what did I do? So I looked up tawny. The definition of tawny is it's a color, specifically orange-brown. So in this case, I borrowed a page from Douglas Adams in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in that he refers to a sentient shade of blue. So in my case, my talky tawny is a sentient shade of orange from another dimension. <laughs> And something happens which allows them to cross over to our universe. They can possess any animate or inanimate object on Earth as long as it's got some orange color in it. The Mr. and the title, Mr. Takitani, that's gone. It's just Takitani now. So it's all gender-neutral pronouns because it's neither male nor female. Or it could possess something that's or male or female. It doesn't really matter. So, uh, so yes, Takitani might spend some time you know, possessing the body of a tiger because they can possess an orange beast. Or they might possess an orange construction cone and it gains the mobility and a face and can talk. Or it might possess like an orange, uh, an ugly orange Christmas sweater that someone's wearing. Or they might possess the body of someone who uses too much spray tan that's turned their skin orange, whatever. Bottom line, it's a little bit like Boston Brand. He completely inhabits and takes over this person or, or item or whatever. And the story sort of revolves around Takitani living in this borough of a big city. You know, I don't care why. It could be like Queens or Brooklyn or Gotham Heights or something, whatever. And Takitani makes this small group of very quirky friends. So you have this great quirky supporting cast, ones that, you know, they kind of really stick with you and are funny. And the friends are always having to deal with Takitani constantly changing bodies, so it's quirky there. And Takitani themselves are very innocent. They're very kind to the point of being almost naive because they're new to this world and they just want to help people. But the conflict in the issues might come from any number of things. They might have to stop an alien invasion of their burrow, or they might just have to stop their quirky friend Max from eating Takitani while they're possessing a tub of orange sherbet or something like that. So, uh, yeah, a sentient shade of orange. That is my Takitani. <laughs> I hope the first cover is just orange. Oh, that's brilliant. That's good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you got yourself out of that hole. It's... <laughs> because Mr. Takitani... He's a hard fit yeah. in a superhero universe. Like, if he's completely separate and he's like a funny animal character, well, maybe. You did well. You did well <laughs> considering. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now it's our bonus books. I chose not to add a bonus series. My problem was that anything that was there that was like, okay, that has potential, I felt like I'd already done the story somewhere else in the line. Yeah. Like, it sort of inspired kind of the same thing. I don't want to do the Monster Society because it's like, well, it's going to be what? It's going to be like Takitani buys a zoo. You know, it's, it's a little <laughs> bit. So anyways, I decided not to do so. It's my option. But you found something. I did. Well, my initial one was also a big letdown. And I, I didn't need, I, I'll just tell you what it was. It's not inspiring. I done. I feel like I'd done it before too, but it was, it was like a, so I've got two. So I'm going to cheat since you don't have one. The first one, I did the Monster Society. And the idea is I wanted to sort of tie it to some of the stuff I'd done already. So it was going to be like this black, I'm, I'm going going to shortcut it here. It was going to be a black ops government agency, like a suicide squad kind of thing uh, with a lot of espionage, but they were going to be hunting down monsters, which included like Solomon Grundy or Kaiju monsters or Metamorpho or a hyper-intelligent shade of orange, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, it didn't really inspire me. And then about 12 minutes before we started recording, it suddenly came to me what I wanted to do and I cracked it. So I was very happy that happened. So here is my, my other pitch. You ready? It's called How I Became the Mirror Master. How I Became the Mirror Master. It's a 12-issue limited series. If it does well, give it a, make it an ongoing, whatever. But issue number one starts off with our protagonist 
all decked out in the classic Mirror Master costume, facing off against the Flash. Now, this is not the original Mirror Master. This is somebody new in the costume. And the inner monologue is he's explaining, he's like, like maybe, I don't know, maybe the Flash is about to punch him in the face, whatever. But the inner monologue explains that he's the new Mirror Master, and this is the story of how that happened. And then the story immediately rewinds. You don't see what happens in that confrontation between Flash and Mirror Master. The story rewinds a whole year. And you meet this nice 19-year-old kid. And I went with a guy, but you could flip the gender. You could flip the, the ethnicity. It doesn't really matter. Uh, anyway, this person, they're meek, very nerdy. And suddenly and inexplicably, they develop a strange superpower. It's a reflexive power that they can't control. Uh, it just happens. And basically, when they're talking with someone, this illusion appears over them that alters their appearance. So the illusion looks like, uh, and I'm just going to use the he, the him pronouns here because I had it as a him. But anyway, so he there's an illusion cast over him that makes him look like the person he's talking to. So, you know, if I were talking to you, Siskoid, you would suddenly see me as yourself. However, it's not just the way you really look. It's the way you look in the deepest, darkest corners of your mind, the places where the things you dislike about yourself. Because everyone, when they look in the mirror, sees the negatives about themselves. Even the biggest egoist, you know, is covering insecurities. Everyone sees the negatives in themselves. So when somebody looks at this this, this mirror master kid, or projects back at them, is just this worst case scenario of what they think about themselves. And it is rattling, and it upsets them, and it's horrifying to see like everything you you don't like about yourself looking back at you. He can't control it; it just happens. So he's going around accidentally upsetting all these people he cares about. So after an issue or two of like horrible situations getting worse and worse, he decides he should probably try to use his power to help people. So there's a ch- there's like a act one is you know all of this happening to him. Act two is him trying to help people, uh, trying to help people overcome their own insecurities about their appearance or their body or maybe they've got body dysmorphia, whatever. He's got this great ambition to help people with this power to say, look, this is what you see, but this isn't who you are. The problem is this kid's got luck like Peter Parker. Nothing goes right. Every situation gets worse and worse. They go to the bank to cash their paycheck, but the clerk sees like a horrifying version of herself and thinks it's some kind of robbery. So suddenly he's being arrested by cops. It's just everything keeps going wrong. So first act is discovering the powers. Second act is trying to do good, but not really succeeding. The third act is it all spiraling out of control. And it really wears the kid down and their hopes for helping people. So by the end, they become a villain. And that's how the story plays out into issue 12. It culminates with the kid actually taking on the Mirror Master mantle, fighting the Flash. But ultimately, you know, you've come to like this character over 12 issues. So is he going to be a straight up villain or is it going to be something else? You got to read issue 12 to find out. Nice. I had Mirror Master on my sheet since the beginning. Okay. As a bonus book. And then I I could never crack it. But it was one of the names that I looked to. I was like, like, for a while, I was like, Mr. Mixelplake, but that's... I've got too many comedy series already. You know, it's like, so I'm glad that somebody did something with Mirror Master. Well, that's what eventually cracked us. I didn't want to do anything actually with mirrors, but the idea of you looking at somebody and seeing yourself was the mirror concept there. And that's, that's, that's what helped me crack it. Yeah, real clever. We're at the very end here. So we follow our now well-established tradition because you established it. <laughs> that states that we have only enough money to buy one series from the other editor's line. Which one will it be? So I enjoyed... Everything you put forward, man. Really creative stuff. I don't know how you've done this 15 episodes in a row without starting to burn out. It's amazing. There were four in particular that stood out. Uh, the Matter Eater Lad story was amazing. I love the Tenzel's Restaurant idea. The Miss Liberty. Boy, Miss Liberty was almost going to win it. The, the the tying it into Hamilton kind of idea of, you know, really retelling history from a different light really grabbed me. Talkie Tony buys a zoo. As much as I hate Talkie Tony, I actually would shell out money for that. But if I can only buy one... I got to get the toy. I got to get Gimmick Girl. I got it. <laughs> I'm a collector, right? So that's that's where my money's going is I'm buying Gimmick Girl with the toy. Gimmick Girl is way up there. Your Gimmick Girl, I mean, is way up there for me as well. Oh, okay. But that Metron. Mm. Yeah, I think especially if we're in the early 90s. <laughs> when this line is supposed to come out sort of thing. Proto Vertigo, yeah. It looks like Shade the Changing Man. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with the metronome or whatever ends up being the title of this one. That's where I'm going to put my money. Excellent. That's a metronome or Metron was Metron, Mr. Miracle and Talkie Tawny were my favorites that I came up with myself. So I'm glad one of those uh, resonated with you. Excellent. So what was your favorite of your own? Just out of curiosity. I, I, yeah, I think Gimmick Girl, I, I, you know. The toy. I want to get the toy as well. I want to see what I do with that as an editor. And the beauty of it is it's going to sell really well because everyone's going to buy two copies. One to keep it in the bag, the other to play with the toy. 
Yeah, you know, we know what we're doing. But yeah. at the same time, the very classic ones where we didn't change anything, it's like th- those are no-brainers. That's a Metal Men is would be a no-brainer yeah. purchase. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, Metamorpho would be a no-brainer purchase. So, it's just it's, it's like we're not we're not going like, oh, clever ideas, you know, it, because we're just not changing anything yep. or very little. Can't improve upon perfection. Exactly. Okay, well, listeners, it's your time. You go to fireandwaterpodcast.com, you tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? If you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? If you're Diablo Frank, just write any damn thing. He, I don't even think he listens to the show, uh, other than his own episode. I think he just writes in what he wants. <laughs> no, he listens to the show, and then he also writes what he wants. And then he also tells me people shouldn't be reading that stuff. He just needs to exercise it. <laughs> He's shocked. He's shocked when people comment about it. Oh, I love you, Frank. I truly, truly do. He's running his own continuity over there. He needs to get that out. So I need to get to episode 26 so that he can be free of it. <laughs> you're doing you're his, his own personal uh, priest uh, confessional. That's a very kind of you. So uh, and if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash FW Podcast. I hope you had fun, Shag. Oh, this is an absolute blast. Thank you so much for having me back, Cisco. I, I love every minute of this. I love listening to the show and so many creative ideas. And and I know for everyone at home, it's it's so hard to listen because all you do as a listener is your brain's exploding with your own ideas, which is part of the fun of the show, but also makes it difficult because the people can't hear you while you're talking back to the podcast. That's true. Why don't you mention like the podcast that you are on, that you produce yourself so that uh, people like your the sound of your voice and aren't already listening to <laughs> those shows? They might. Well, the sound of my voice isn't great right now because I'm fighting a, a head cold, if you will. So uh, sorry about that, folks. Um, so you can find me in a lot of places on the Firewater Podcast Network, specifically on the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. You can find me on uh, the Aquaman and Firestorm show, the Who's Who show, Digest cast, uh, a number of various uh, FW presents and uh, when people let me uh, slum on their shows too. And I appreciate it. Thanks for trying the experience with me a second time. <laughs> and until next time, who's editing? We, we are. are. Want to make something of it? Lead. He has a crush on the soda machine. But she won't talk to him. He doesn't know <laughs> so why. Great. You've got tin. He usually turns into a waste paper basket because that's what he thinks he's good for. You've got Mercury, who is the one guy who's like pro-robot. The thing about the Metal Men is that they were designed to be soldiers. Of course, when the Metal Men are born, they're like people. To be sentient isn't to be you know, malicious. I don't believe that.